Okay. We are live. Are we live? Yes, sir. Some of us are more live than others. Yep. It's pretty obvious who's the most alive in this living room, so it isn't me. Okay, we'll take the glasses off. If you say I should start, are you saying I should start? Yeah. Okay, well then I'll start really fast. Um, and I had, I had some things written down and I left them in the office and I'll just try to go uh, from memory here. I, I had a call from a gentleman in San Diego named Daniel who is an Ethiopian Jew, and he was part of the Operation Moses. There's also uh, Operation Solomon and Joshua, where the Israelis uh, went into Ethiopia and rescued a bunch of Ethiopian Jewish people and brought them back to Israel. It was in 1985, and Daniel is one of those people, and he talked to me at length, and it was an incredible uh, phone call, and he's got a little group down there, and they are listening to us, and I can't even imagine uh, why they would do that, but we are so thrilled they are. And we got in a discussion about Keturah and Sheba, Queen of Sheba, and the wife of Abraham, Genesis 25, ultimately, but then also uh, Solomonic uh, and uh, the Solomonic contact with Sheba, and why she is a judge of the angels, which kind of fits our little system here. I should put her on the board, but I won't today. But anyway, I just wanted to say hi to Daniel and that group down there, and I will be covering your subjects uh, as soon as I can get to them. And We're going to be taking off here pretty quick for our summer break. We have doors to put in, two of them, and we have to frame things up and sheetrock that we got to do. So we're going to need a couple of weeks to get that done before it snows again, which is sometime. You know, summer is over here. What? What day? Uh, uh, I think, uh, let's see, the 18th is Friday, the 21st, summer is over, and then the days start getting uh, shorter and shorter, so the end of our life has occurred in another week or so. Okay, so here we go, let's see, where am I? June the 13th, 2021, lecture discussion number 141 on the book of Joel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, First uh, Kings 13, Second Kings 23. Okay, being at the past few Sundays, uh, maybe now 10 lectures or so back, I'm not sure the process has been somewhat diffused. I know that. And that, uh, that's a cliffside routine. But uh, you could make the case this time that the traditional discursive, discursive, uh, discursive, can't say my S's, never could. My traditional discursive mechanism is slightly more erratic than my normal chaotic mechanism. So we're we're in kind of a mess now, and I got all of that. And some are going to propose that uh, the cliffside conventional model is already at the very highest level of entropy and that any additional higher entropy is unattainable and certainly undetectable. So uh, that may be true, and I'm unable to rebut their position. So uh, I can only offer... Uh, Pollyannism, which means I'm just going to hope for the best, and maybe that'll work out. We'll see. Sanguinous. You can choose that word as well. Another, eh, we're going to endeavor to persevere on the basis that the entropy that I have created is not infinite, and there's still room for more uh, disorder here, more space. So that uh, provides justification, therefore, to review all of this material that I have thrown at the board and hope that it's stuck. And that's where we're going to begin today. Uh, uh, consider it an amical reminder of the recent boulevard here that we've navigated. So uh, we'll see how it all goes. So last week, lecture number 140 emphasized the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3, 16. 
That mystery is the greatest of all mysteries, and I'm trying to find it on the board. I need to memorize the board, but it absolutely is here somewhere. 214 is deceived, and I'm looking for, or 114 is deceived. 214 is deceived, I'm looking for 216. Does anybody see it? Oh, where is it? My gosh, I have to do this. I have to at least look at the board before I start the lecture. Anyway, the greatest of all mysteries uh, is uh, 1 Timothy uh, 3.16. And the secret uh, is amazing. It it is something that we can't even begin to imagine, and we're never going to ever get it. it. It's impossible to conceive it. Even though it's been revealed to us, we still won't ever be able to understand it, no, no matter how much time we are given, which is infinite time. So anyway, 1 Timothy 3.16, the mystery of godliness, has a direct reciprocity to the mystery of the indwelling. So these two fit together. Colossians 1.26.27, Galatians 2.20 fits with 1 Timothy 3.16. So that's what we're trying to do a little bit right now, and especially today. I made the statement that the first ministry, ministry, mystery, God himself manifested in the flesh, and the secret of the hidden truth, the second mystery, that's which is Christ in us. So we have these two hiddenness in a way, because Christ hid himself into in humanity. He hid himself like the Ark was, of the Covenant was covered with skins and transported under uh, under secret circumstances. He did the same thing with his human body. And we have this hidden truth in us, the second mystery, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27. Those have to be considered together, is what I'm trying to say. And yes, I understand that the entire 11 mysteries, there's 11 of them in my view. I know some disagree. They say seven or eight, but I believe that Larkin got it right. There is exactly 11. Um, And so the 11 mysteries comprise one mystery. So uh, 11 pieces of a singular mystery. Uh, however, the first and second of the 11 mysteries present an elevated relationship, again, in my view, in my opinion. And if I'm correct again, still, uh, then it is compulsory, in my opinion, still, again, to investigate them as, the, as to the nature of their uh, reciprocity or the reciprocation. And that is why Adam's decision to cover himself what what are they doing there? They are covering themselves. Why are they covering themselves? He asks why. Essentially, they're in a hidden state. Why are you hiding? So they have hiddenness. So when I look at that, I see that decision to cover himself and the woman with fig leaves. That becomes germane, as does the death, the killing of the two billion in Revelation 9.15. The tormenting of the unsealed, Revelation 9, 4 through 5, all of those fit together. And the angelic realm's capacity to see the soul spirit of the consciousness as it leaves the body of a living being. That's a question we'll deal with again today. Can Can the angelic realm see the spirit, the soul, the consciousness, the mind leave uh, the body when the body dies? So I believe they have that capacity. We'll get into that as time goes by here today. And as it applies to Revelation 9, the case that it applies to Revelation 9 is such that can the angels either fallen or unfallen, or both, or just the unfallen, which are the faithful, right? You see the un, you start thinking that's the negative. No, it's not. The, The unfallen are the faithful. Can the fallen or the faithful, can they see the second mystery or the unseen Christ in us? Can they see it? 
Can they detect it? They can certainly see the spirit when it leaves. And they know its direction it is going, don't they? Not direction, but so much they know what destiny that it has. Can they see the indwelling or the second mystery? The seal of the living God. Christ in the saved. All of those apply to the second mystery. And whenever I swerve or careen into this subject, immediately and usually I am asked about 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 6. So as it relates, let me find it for us. 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 6 as it relates to Enoch, Elijah, Moses, and John the Apostle. I get it almost every single time, so let me... Uh, let me preempt that. Let me find it first. Being a professional, I should leave things. I used to use playing cards. Okay, here it is. Let's read this really fast. This is Paul. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelation of the Lord. I know a man... In Christ, who and what he said there, and I didn't read it really well, that he's not going to boast about having seen visions and having this revelations of the Lord come to him. He won't brag about that. That, by the way, should make you very, very suspicious of people that say they have a word from the Lord and they boast about it. They're drawing attention to themselves. We have a word from the Lord. It's the entire scripture. When this was written, of course, that was not the case. He said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which is not lawful for a man to utter. Now, how far do I want to go here? We'll finish it. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. Again, another lesson for those who boast about having words from God himself. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees to be or hears from me. Ah. He goes on to say, For lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Okay, we'll stop there for now. What is Paul the Apostle referring to when he says, I know of a man 14 years ago, whether in in the body or out of the body, essentially. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know God knows. How he was caught up. What is he saying here? What about Christ's proclamation to the fallen angels that he imprisoned? 1 Peter 3, 18 and 20 and 2 Peter 2, 4 and and Jude 6. How I'm trying to make you recognize, wait a minute, every time somebody has been out of the body, we should pay it. We should collect them all, right? And if Paul is out of the body, what about uh, what about Christ when he left to uh, proclaim to the imprisoned angels obviously Paul is attributing this experience this whether in the body whether out of the body being caught up to heaven to who 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 is this person he's talking about it's no question that it is Paul himself I'm now making noises again aren't I you didn't hear it good I'm hearing it so if you're not we're okay and he says Paul Paul himself said he had a thorn in the flesh 
Again, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, 7. Paul is the man in Christ who had this encounter with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 12, 8. Fourteen years ago, as a direct result of that, Satan sends a messenger. It says clearly in the Greek, angelos, or angel. He, Satan sends a fallen angel. Uh, and, and as just with Job, the same thing happens to Job. Um, Paul describes this messenger as a thorn in his flesh, something, something that torments him. And he, uh, three times Paul asks uh, Christ to remove, to cast away this messenger who buffets Paul. Three times. Probably a coincidence. Why not seven times? Why not 20 times? But three times. And, and Christ's answer is this. My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. What does he mean by that? I'm not getting rid of this satanic adversary that is sent by Satan himself. And I hear people all the time tell me Satan sent somebody to attack me. No, he didn't. Quit boasting. Read the the text. Paul is an apostle and an author of Scripture through the Holy Spirit. We are not. Get a clue. And uh, I am informed of the other views on 2 Corinthians 12. There are those who believe the thorn in the flesh was a physical wounding. They say that uh, they offer up the speculation that Paul might have been left with a limp or a withered arm, for example, and that it is not a messenger from Satan. It is not a demon. But keep in mind that Paul was an apostle. He's capable of mighty, great signs of wonders. He did it. Uh, that's not to be confused with the fake signs and wonders that we see people try today. Good luck standing before Christ with that nonsense. Uh, not going to work out so well for you. The purposes of these signs of Paul, they're incredible. We don't even have any idea what they were, but they were incredible. There's some that we do know, but most that we don't. And they were to authenticate the fact that Paul was an, an apostle directed by God, assigned by God. So this is his apostolic uh, office that he is validating here, authenticating. So he was a man of great God-given power. And a limp and a bum arm, if that's what you think they are, would not have affected him. He would not have asked three times to have himself healed of a limp or a bad arm when he's raising people and doing all kinds of miraculous things, especially in and consideration of 2 Corinthians 4.16 and 4.17, where he says this. Uh, excuse me. <coughs> ah. Therefore, we should not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet our inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. What is he saying? Is our What is our light affliction? That is our rate of living. In other words, good health is the slowest possible rate at which we die, right? Mm-hmm. So my afflictions, my 104, I'm up to 104 kidney stones that have come through me that I have manufactured myself. Finally, I've made something of value that I turn into jewelry. For my lovely wife, she can't wait. But 104 of these nasty things have come through, and it hurts every time. And I'm still struggling with it. I'm standing here in front of you with my left uh, ureter is inflamed. 
But that is a light affliction. What else is a light affliction? That's an infirmity. Obviously, he would consider a lame arm or a bad foot to be a light affliction. He would not ask Christ three times to take it away from him. Now, a messenger from Satan is a different complete story because Christ has authority over the demonic world. And so that would make the most sense in the context. A light affliction for a moment what he considers a moment is our lifespan. Our lifespan would give us a hundred years if you want. A lifespan of a hundred years next to infinity is insignificant nothingness. It's basic math. There's always math. So infinite in turn, in eternity is what we're talking about. And yes, that's an intentional redundancy. I get to do that because somewhere, no, I'm not, not on there anymore. I used to be the highly trained religious professional. Okay, lots of information pathways that are available to travel now. Are, there are plenty here. And they explode out and they go into disparate uh, regions of Scripture. As always, there's a pattern, as you know. That's the way the Bible is designed, and that's why we, we pay so much attention to it, and that's why we value that so much. Scripture always appears to, that it's going to scatter out into directions that are never going to reconcile, but that's not true. What seems to be unconnected fields of reference is never that. It always finds itself. The Bible will eventually touch it, touch everywhere. It's the only, it's only a matter of searching it out. The more you search out the degrees of separation, the more you find that it is interconnected. That is how it works. And that's how it identifies that God wrote it. He put it in this format. This is why he did this. It's because it's astonishing. It's also the, an example of his creation. As you know, as I've said many times, just look at the cosmological aspect, the heavens, the, the gravitational fields that exist out there, how everything fits. Uh, there's no possibility that that kind of uh, complexity could have arised out of nothing, out of an explosion, unless the explosion was done by the author himself. And he doesn't have to have an explosion. He can literally put all of the information in place at once. He is that kind of intelligence. But it identifies that God himself is the author of this book. And his purpose, of course, in this book is to bring forth testimony of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is on every single page, and it must interconnect somewhere. If it doesn't, then you've got a book that's apocryphal, or you've got a book that is not valid and shouldn't be part of the canon, and it was cast out for those kinds of reasons. Anyway, it's common to find commentary on 2 Corinthians 12 to be included in discussions on the intentional or the stress-induced disengagement of the soul from the body. You have some religious people that say to you that they can accomplish this by putting their body under stress. We have other people that say that it occurred to them under a stressful situation. Uh, and we have others that say they do it themselves with a ph pharmacological agency. Uh, so uh, when you get into this discussion, those three things are going to show up. And usually I get questions on dimethyltryptamine. You know, they bring that to me, and uh, it rises up. And uh, dimethyltryptamine is a Schedule One controlled sub substance. It's a hallucinogenic. Uh, it's it's plant-based, though it is uh, also uh, synthetically manufactured. Uh, and you're going to find records of m mystics, ancient records, very, very old, thousands of years old, uh, that insist that uh, dimethyltryptamine contributes to an out-of-body experience. That they they can they can drive the soul spirit the consciousness the mind whatever you want to call it out and they can look back at themselves and they've been claiming this for as I said ancient times centuries centuries and centuries 
I actually spent some time studying it because I got so much uh, questions on dimethyltryptamine maybe 15 years ago, maybe longer. Did you guys ever hear me do that? How long have you been here? 30, 40 years now? Okay. But do you remember me doing dimethyltryptamine? Okay, so at least it, it, I, I'm thinking 15 years ago, but it could have been uh, 10 or 12. Uh, but uh, what's that? 10 or 12. 10 or 12? So you're not that old? Okay. Not yet. Not yet. Not Boy, you, yet. you look terrible. She, she of course, looks great. You know, I mean, I don't know what happened to you. Yeah. That bus, you know, you got to check it day, you follow him, find that guy. Sue. There's a real chance. But anyway, what am I doing? Who knows? I'm tired. You are an ECRP, though. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, because of dimethyltryptamine, Second uh, uh, Corinthians 12 and Revelation 4, I, I get all of these kinds of things. Obviously, the Apostle Paul, though, and I read it again, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows whether I was in the body or out of the body. I don't know how he was caught up to paradise, into paradise, and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Oh, that's incredibly mysterious. What was it that a man can't express? What was he told? Uh, was he in the body or out of the body? He obviously allows for it as possible, doesn't he? Does it twice. I do not know whether out of the body. I do not know. God knows. So he allows for the possibility. And that, of course, has launched this kind of, th- uh, this kind of thought process or this kind of study. I read all the books that I could find on it. I read the, uh, the um, psychologist, I believe he was a psychologist, that did the most uh, work on it. And uh, I have to say to you that I found, how do I put this? I found uh, vacancies. How's that for a u- u- uh, euphemism? But this is Holy Spirit-inspired 2 Corinthians 12, 2 and 12, 3, where he says, out in the body, I don't know, or out of the body. So why would God himself put those words in his canon? Because that's what he's done. So we have to be careful when we uh, enter into this amphitheater. This is, a, this is a very difficult subject. And prepare yourself now for what are they going to bring up when you talk about dimethyltryptamine? What, what's the first thing you hear? Yes, you're right again. That's the pineal glean or the pineal glean. I say pineal. I've heard pineal. And... uh I would, I would tell you that pineal is more common than pineal. And it's a tremendous controversy. In 1600, Descartes, René Descartes, the philosopher, mathematician, Cartesian mathematics, for example, brilliant man, and he spent his life trying to solve the, uh, the soul, the mind-brain problem, what we call it today, but he tried to solve the, the soul and the body. And um, he postulated that the pineal gland was the principal seat of the soul. And you can imagine how that statement animated everybody at the time. He said, that is where the soul is. Now, there's some biblical issues with regard to that, but I'm not going to argue with Rene Descartes. He was way ahead of me. But the pineal gland is a little tiny thing, about that big. Uh, and though it, it produces melatonin, and, and we know that it influences the sleep cycle, but there's yet to be found any conclusive uh, evidence that it produces dimethyltryptamine in any large quantity. It's a little tiny gland. 
and where it's located is fantastically interesting. They, they, they say it was the third eye. You've heard the third eye. The mystics do, and and, and they've paid attention to it for, like I said, ancient. It's an ancient uh, controversy, and they paid attention to it in every aspect for thousands of years. But they, but it does not produce enough dimethyltryptamine in any quantity, not enough to catapult the mind from the body. I don't believe. And it's it, and either that, and not enough to uh, cause a psychosis that might uh, convince somebody that it did do that. It is a hallucinogenic drug, especially when it is uh, synthetically produced. But it's also in large quantities able to do very dangerous things to people. So the pineal gland. Uh, is it the gateway in and out of the human experience? The mystical third eye? Probably not. Uh, does the pineal gland form 49 days from the conception in babies? Yes, it does. Anything that's a 7-7, seven, seven, I start start pay, paying attention to because i got four four nineties to deal with here pretty soon. God likes 49 490s, and he makes sure that he includes them. So this pineal gland is in there. 490 plus 490 plus 490 plus 490 is 1953. Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> but it is. And that's a very, very significant uh, mathematical uh, composition that has been revealed. And I always ask the question, why does God reveal these kinds of things? What is he doing? Who is it for? Is there a lot to be uh, discovered on the pineal gland? Is it much that is unknown? Oh, yeah, there's a lot we don't know about the brain, for sure. We have no idea. You see some fantastic research going on in this particular area. Is it easy to get lost in the weeds of the bazaar? Oh, yes, it is. So you got to be a little bit careful. Be judicious. And more of this is going to come as we get into these kinds of subjects, because here we are. Uh, because ultimately the subject is the certainty of the breath of the spirit of life in all living beings, the absolute positive certainty of that. And I got a letter from Susie from Bakersfield. Hi, Susie. Uh, I've never received a letter like this before. I can't even I can't tell you what it is because I don't want to reveal it. Uh, it is a very sensitive matter, but it was uh, it's an extraordinary experience. And so uh, Susie from Bakersfield has motivated me to spend a little bit more time in it. And I certainly take it seriously. So whenever we're doing this, we got the ladder of Genesis 28, 12 through 15. This ladder keeps coming up and coming up and coming up. Uh, it's really uh, valuable to have a firm grasp of it. The, that's the angels ascending and descending. That's Luke 16, 22. That's Hebrews 1, 14. All, all of those scriptures are involved in the disengagement of the soul from the body. And I have a note to read Hebrews here, so let's do that really fast, just to cement this, this in here. Now, if only my hands would work. They don't. What is happening to me? Hebrews one uh, fourteen. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister those who will inherit salvation. So he, I'm going to now make the leap back to the ladder of Jacob in Genesis 28, 12 through 15, where they're coming and going up and down. What are they ministering? This one says it is they're coming forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. So that is the unfallen angels on that ladder that is Christ. So that subject is Hebrews 1.14 is clearly involved in the disengagement of the soul from the body. Again, Luke 16.22.
All of those are saying the faithful angels are assigned to minister, to deliver, to present, to provide assistant, assistance to those who have died that have the seal of the living God on them. That's one of their jobs. That's one of their tasks. And these are the ones that have the seal of the living God. These are those um, that are the recipients of the saving blood of Jesus Christ. They're the heirs to salvation of, of, of Hebrews 1.14. A while back, quite a few lectures ago, I asked, why do the unfallen angels, the faithful angels, why do they have this assignment? When did it begin? When did God say, you are going to go and escort the dead in Christ to me? That's your new assignment. Why did they get that assignment? When did it happen? Obviously, the origin must be subsequent to the fall of Adam. Because if I don't have the fall of Adam, I have to change. I got to shut this door, or we're going to have left it open. If I don't shut that, we're going to have barking dogs. I could have shut it for you. You could have, but I was so much faster at jumping up and rushing to it. I could hear the noise starting out there. It's a hot day here in Alaska. We call hot, what is that, 66 degrees? Oh, it's horrible. Gosh, we got air conditioning. Everybody's eating ice. It's so hot. No one can sleep. It's really awful. Hopefully, it'll get down to 14, 15 degrees here everybody. by July, we're hoping, like normal. That keeps people out of this state. You know, all i got to do is just make a joke, and they, go, they believe me. And they should. It's really cold here. Don't come. I'm kidding. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> uh, we need enough people coming in to keep the housing prices up. And then then once we're ready to leave, they can collapse and we'll never care. We'll be in our motor home somewhere. Not Arizona. Oh, my gosh. Who could live in Arizona? <laughs> anyway, where am I? I'm a professional. I'll find it. There must be a fallen mankind, a fallen Adam for the latter to be in place. Is that obvious? I hope it is, which makes one consider the fallen angels or the angels of Satan. It was the intention of the star fallen from heaven, Revelation 9.1. That is Satan. It, is in, it was intent, the intention of him to deceive mankind into corruption. That's why he goes after Adam, who, who he, he was unable to deceive, but he was able to deceive the woman. He knows if he can deceive them that he can have them die. He can't physically kill her, but he can cause her to kill herself or someone else to kill someone else. That's what he can do. We'll get to that as we go along as well. But he intended to deceive mankind into corruption immediately upon the witnessing of the creation of Adam. And what I'm saying by that, as soon as he sees Adam, Genesis 2-7, he decides, I've got to do something about this. In other words, uh, what can I do? And then as soon as he hears, you will surely die if you eat from this tree, which it comes quite quickly, I assume. Then that gives him his opportunity and his methodology. Does that make sense? I hope it does. I need to stop saying, does that make sense? He sees the creation of Adam, Genesis 2-7. That is, he is the deposed king of Eden. He has been deposed, if I'm right on my timeline, which I am. Sure. 
Ezekiel 28, he has been deposed and he hated the second king. Is that uncommon? Just watch your own politics or the world politics. The the second king of Eden, Genesis 2.15, is Adam. And, And he is significantly different in design and function and his ability to interact with the kingdom than the satanic king was, or the Satanist king. I said last Sunday that an aspect of releasing the imprisoned demonic armies of Revelation 9, those demonic armies that come out in two phases or two waves, was to reveal the enmity. And I use that word on on purpose because when they come out, they have enmity for humanity. And that is a Genesis 3.15 reference. So you have to ask why. you got to not ask. You've already figured out a lot of it. But start thinking about what is the depth of the hatred that Satan has for Adam? Why does he hate Adam? Why do the, the demons that come out of the abyss in those two waves hate all of humanity? What is their plan? Why do they have this tremendous drive to hate and kill? and torment. <sighs> the intensity of the hatred of the fallen angels uh, is hard to even uh, for us to imagine. It is incredibly powerful. So again, where did this hatred come from? Why is it here? Just because your guy got, got kicked out of Eden, why do you hate the guy and the people that took over? What is the reason for that? Uh, and again, it is at a level that it is unimaginable for us, the hatred the fallen angels have for all of mankind. And there are two objectives of Satan that rise to the top of all of his ambitions. One is to inspire as much death and misery as possible. He wants total, complete, uh, murderous evil and wickedness. And he wants it to end humanity. He wants humanity to be this way. He's trying to create as much of that in humanity as he can. He knows his his fate fully. He has complete knowledge of what's going to happen to him. He's in the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41. Somewhere over there. Oh, right there. Look at me find that. Yay, I found one. Um, so he knows where he's going. Satan intends to, to maneuver, if you want to think of it that way. And it's hard to have words to describe this kind of stuff when you compare... God himself. And you have to maintain that timelessness that he has and that infinity and that omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence. But he's trying to maneuver the loving. And again, I'm a professional. I can use this word, even though I know it's theologically incorrect. He's trying to uh, move the, the loving and merciful God of creation into casting those who willfully choose the lake of death which is uh, into the lake of death. In other words, he wants to try to get as many people into the lake of fire as he can. As soon as God created it, he intended to fill it full of human beings. As much as he could accomplish it. Again, he has limitations. It's the lake of death and judgment. Keep in mind that the lake of death is, is the actual definition of death. So the death is defined by those who are in the lake of death. If you are in the lake of death, you are dead. If you are not, you are not dead. In fact, you are alive. As, as God defines death and life. Death and life to him is location, is destination. It is not a condition in the sense that we think of death as this absence of the spirit from the body. He does not think of it that way. That is the first death. We, the second death is how he makes his definition Our physical death is but a light affliction, as Paul said. In comparison, again, mathematics, my lifespan is very short compared to eternity. 
So it's a light affliction. Affliction, sorry. And number two is to bring the chaos and wickedness, the murder, to such an altitude that God weeps. Because God weeps for the lost. Those who choose the lake of fire, he weeps for them. He wishes that none should perish. He says that uh, consistently. But, and he weeps for the lost. Whenever God is sorry or whenever he is weeping, he is weeping and sorry for those who he knows have chosen this eternity and condemnation. So he nonetheless, though, is going to end the sin and the violence and the continual evil only, which is what is occurring. We're watching it, the building back up of the continual evil only, all the murdering of children. and uh, uh, It's just astonishing how much wickedness is now in the, in the world. And I can see it growing and growing. The darkness is taking over. The first time that he ends all of this violence is, of course, uh, Genesis 6. He's got to stop it. It got too much. He had to shut it down. He shut it down in Sodom and Gomorrah. He shut it down in Judges 19. He shuts it down in the Tower of Babel with Nimrod. So he lets this evil grow, but then he always ends it. If he doesn't end it, then what is he? He is willing to allow it to continue. And that is in in itself uh, not something that he can do because that would be wickedness itself. Allowing wickedness is wicked. So he has to stop it. So he gives it a time period or a season, if you wish. So the first occurrence, Genesis 6, is you, and, and you know as well that this is all going to be repeated at the tribulation, the culmination being Revelation 19.21, where he ends it again. So the relationship between Genesis and Revelation is obvious. The irony in all of this is that Satan's lie with respect to existence and will is antithetical to the killing of human beings. Or the death of human beings. So let me say that again. Satan has a lie. And then he goes about trying to kill as many people as possible that he can influence the deaths of. Those are in, a, are in conflict. They are a contradiction. So let me repeat it. Satan's lie with respect to existence and will is antithetical to killing humans. In other words, the demons desire to be given permission to kill a human being. They want that really badly. Satan wants it really badly. and But that permission is diametrically in opposition to the lie of Satan as he has expressed it, as it's recorded in Genesis 3-4, Job 1-6-12, Job 2-1-10. So they don't fit. He's doing something that is the opposite of what he says is true. In John 8.44, he's the murderer from the beginning, he's a liar, and he's the father of it. I should inject that Satan and his angels cannot now kill a man or an animal. They can't do it. They can facilitate it. That's all they can do. That's their limitation. And then again, Job 1.12, Job 2.6 establishes uh, the formula. Uh, similar uh, to the first woe of Revelation 9. There was no death for 150 days. He let the first wave come out, the Abaddon wave, and no death. Torment can't kill him. Abaddon's attack. However, However, the second woe of the three woes, there's three woes. The first woe is the locusts that can only torment 150 days and no death. The second woe is, is uh, the demonic army of the four angels, and they are given license to kill a third of mankind, two billion people, as we now count. By the time it happens, I believe it will be at least two billion people will be a third. So there's this monumental change 
cannot kill. Now they can. Why? What's going on in, in Revelation 9, uh, 9, 4 and 5 and, and 9, uh, 15? It's not a coincidence, because there are no coincidences in the Bible, can't they say that enough, that one third of the angels fell with Satan, Revelation 12, 4. Having, having been waiting for the hour and the day and the month and the year, Revelation 9.15. I, I need to read Revelation 9.15 because it's extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Unbelievable verse. Unbelievable. Obviously, I have a third of the angels fell with Satan, and what's their what's their capability to kill a third of mankind? That is not a coincidence because there is no coincidences. Stop it. It's not arbitrary because there's no there's no arbitrary in the Bible. This is an omniscient being that wrote this, that, that inspired it, that gave it to the man to men who act as his agencies. So. Revelation 9.15, they have been waiting for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to finally be able to physically kill a human being. And here it comes. Instead of enlisting mankind to kill mankind. uh, It also isn't a coincidence uh, that communism, which is monistic, atheistic, Darwinism, is responsible for the murder of hundreds of millions of people. I would expect that every time. If you have no understanding of the the soul and the body, you will kill people. You won't care. You will love to kill people because that's a tremendous amount of power. Monistic, atheistic Darwin reflects the lie of Satan. No question about it. I can't say it enough. It makes people mad. They say, how dare you call atheism satanic? Well, then, why would you care if you don't believe there is a satanic element? Anyway, Revelation 9.15 is a marked departure from the operational procedure. Not since Genesis 6 has the fallen angels been allowed to physically interact with human-animal dominion. They were able to physically impact animals and humans at Genesis 6. Uh, I don't believe they could kill them there, but they definitely had some capability of interaction. And and we know how that ended up, don't we? That turned out bad. Uh, So I want to know, is this the event that put this prohibition in place? Because we have the veil, where we have to figure out when did the veil come, where we can't see each other very well, can't interact very well, we don't see angels, we don't know how much they see us. There's that situation. When did that occur? And then what happened after this uh, physical interaction in Genesis 6? From previous lectures, I said, why did Christ give the key to the star fallen? Why did he do that? Did I answer that question yet? Did I answer that last week? You think I answered that? Uh, I hope not. No, you didn't answer it. I hope I shouldn't answer it. I mean, that's an answer. We don't do answers. Yeah. I mean, that would that would destroy my whole system. But why did Christ give this key to the star fallen, which is Satan? 
Obviously, Jesus God has a purpose. And since his name is literally salvation, Yeshua, right? That's his name. Salvation must be his purpose. It's always his purpose. It must be so. So how is it so? How is handing a key to Satan so he can release these angelic men, men, angelic beings to attack and kill human men? Why does Christ give that key to him? Knowing fully he's omniscient, what's going to happen? How is that salvation? Who got saved by that? Because somebody must have got saved. He's always saved. But how did they get saved? When did it happen and who made those kinds of decisions? It, it predates the mark. Remember, the mark is coming. That's one of the reasons Satan is doing what he's doing. The mark is coming when salvation has ended. So he has a purpose. In lecture number 140, June the 6th, the question of the seal of the living God came up. To repeat, the latter makes it obvious that the angels who remained in their tent, and I emphasize tent, that's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 4. That's Jude 6. Oiketeria. Oiketeria. That means tent as well as dwelling, as well as, as uh, abode or estate. The latter angels who stayed in their tent or their abode or their dwelling or their whatever you want to call it, estate tent, have the ability, but intent, again, I want to focus, every time I say tent, that pops. Tent. Wow. Tent. Never mind. It's your emphasis. My emphasis. Emphasis. On the, on the correct syllable. I'll try to become more professional. It's too late, but I'll try. <laughs> I won't try much. It'll be tepid. But uh, who knows somebody with Maturity might watch someday. I should at least pretend that I care. I do care, but not about maturity. Okay. <laughs> the latter angels, L-A-D-D-E-R, on the ladder of Genesis 28:12, they stayed in their tents. Can't can't do it. They have the ability to see the indwelling of Christ. They can see the seal of the living God. Revelation 7, 2 through 4. That's Galatians 2.20, Colossians 1.27.26. That's the indwelling. They can see it. Uh, that's also Ezekiel 9.4 where you can begin to... That's where it begins in the Old Testament for us to study. We know this uh, other than Genesis 2.7. We know this to repeat because of Hebrews 1.14, Genesis 28.10-15, and Luke 16.22-23. That tells us that they know who has the seal, who has the indwelling. And they're ready. They see somebody who has the indwelling about to die. They come and get you. Luke 16, 22 through 23. Hebrews 1, 14. It's one of the great promises of Scripture. And they escort you up the ladder, which is Christ. That's what they do. That's their job. Okay. The questions uh, that come out of there have some ambiguity. I won't say they don't. But the capability um, of the unfallen angels is absolutely clear. The ambiguity and the questions come with the capability of the fallen angels. Do they have, can they see the, the seal of the living God? Can they detect the indwelling of Christ, the mystery of the indwelling, the mark of God? Can the, can the demons see who is saved and who is unsaved? Do they have that ability? Obviously, the 
the faithful, the unfallen angels can. But who can see the invisible mark of God? I should a sidebar here. The, the mark of God has a counterfeit. We know that, don't we? That's the mark of the beast. And they're, they're the counterfeit and the and the real or the truth. And both are applied to the forehead. Ezekiel 9.4, Revelation 14.9, 13.16. So we know they go on the forehead. Why the forehead? Because that's where the what is. How does he do it? I know you Everybody thinks that, never, not everybody, but a large contention thing that the forehead is chosen because that is the pineal gland. That's the third eye that gravitates back into the center of the brain. And that's why the mark is on the forehead because that is the seat of the soul of the spirit, Rene Descartes. Is that true? If it is true, that's really incredible. We should investigate it, shouldn't we? Again, you can blame Susie in Bakersfield. Did she know that she was getting into dimethyltryptamine in the pineal gland? Probably not. Well, what an, uh, again, uh, I can't reveal it. I shouldn't even say about it, but, but I just was stunned. I've never received a letter like that in my entire so-called uh, career. So, anyway. One mark, that's the mark given by the invisible God, is invisible. Duh. The other is seen. So I have an unseen mark and a seen mark. And he tells us that the unseen mark should be sufficient for us. And in this day and age, that's not necessarily the case. I don't think it's, uh, it's an issue of significance. But we are, we are a group of people that want others to see us more so than ever. Look at Facebook. I mean, we are not content with the unseen. We are desperate for the seen and being seen as a, as a country for sure. But it's going all over the world and you can see the spirituality ebbing away for the physical, right? For the affliction, for the moment instead of the eternity. We know that mankind cannot see the unseen mark of God. Mankind, evil, murderous, wicked men, uh, have marked others for death. And they don't be mistaken, the mark of the beast is a mark of death. But we have had Nazi Germany, for example, mark every Jew in order to kill them. That was the purpose of it. It's a mark of death. And mankind does that, has done that all throughout his uh, existence. But that's exactly what the Antichrist is doing. He's marking people for death. What death is it? It's the real death. It's the second death. Revelation 20:14. Certain death. Revelation 14, 9 through 13. You take the mark of the beast, you will certainly perish in the lake of fire, which is how God defines death. And people will willingly do it. Okay, have you decided if the uh, demonic armies uh, can see the unseen? Have, did you decide? Can they see the indwelling of the, of the seal of the living God? I think they can too. Because Revelation 7, 9 through 17 implies that they can. It tells us that they can. Something I let slip out last week, which was a big oops. Knowing fully that I was going to build to this particular question, I already gave it away. Right on the old, where the pineal gland might have been. Okay. <laughs> Revelation 9, 3 through 6 tell us that they can absolutely, absolutely, gosh, i got to take more water. I have a, uh, I'm not sick, but I don't feel great, let me tell you that. 
So I'm not sleeping. I mean, average, the way I deal with this is I don't sleep. No matter how wonderful my chair is that I have to sit in in order to keep myself in the proper position. So, it gets to be tough. Revelation 9, 3 through 6 tells us that they can absolutely see those, the unfall, I'm sorry, the fallen, the demonic angels can absolutely see those who do not have the seal of living, of the living God on their foreheads because they are told, do not torment any except those who do not have the seal. So they have the ability to determine who has the seal. One way or another, or if they try to torment somebody and he can't be tormented, well, they assume that he has the seal. So they go to somebody that they can torment. So they are tormenting the unsealed or the unsaved at the time. And again, I ask the question, why does Christ give the key to Satan? Because they can torment those who are unsaved at the time. That's how you get to your salvation position. Somebody's going to be saved. They can't find death. They will not die. What is that? They, they try to die. They can't die. What's that? That's amazing. That's fantastic. You can't die. So how much time do you have to be saved? Well, you got 150 days. Guaranteed that you can be saved in that period of time. Now compare that back to the nomadic flood 150 days. Anyway, if that is true, and it is, that they can see, they can at least discern who has the seal by the, by the inverse. To see the absence of the seal or the mark of the living, one must be able to see the mark of the living, in my view. It's basic math again. There's always math. Okay. Everybody, though, is going to see the mark of the dead. Everybody. Because it's a visible mark. The unseen mark is completely different. In, in structure and in function. Okay, have you figured out yet why the lie of Satan is antithetical to the killing the bodies of the man of mankind and the animal? Did you work that out yet? Life begins with the breath of the spirit of life. Living beings have the breath of the spirit of life in them. Genesis 120, 121, 124, 128, 132, 7, Living beings have the breath of the spirit of life in them. That's how they're defined. That's how they become alive. That's how they become everything. The body is simply the manifestation of the breath of the spirit of, of life that is in you, your consciousness. So those Satan lie is absolutely the opposite, is contradictory to the killing of the bodies of man, mankind and animal. Angels do not, angels, they do not have blood. They do not have the breath of the spirit of life because what is required to have breath you have to have a lung system, which means you have to have a physical system, a cardiopulmonary system. You have to have a systemic cardiological system. Well, your blood, veins, arteries, uh, valves, all of those are physical entities. Angels are spiritual beings. They do not have those physical entities. They do not have blood. Uh, that becomes very important. They don't have blood or they don't have, and they don't have breath. They don't have a physical body. These are, um, uh, again, the angels can, can project physical capabilities, but they do not have blood, breath, body. Uh, these are all things that God has. People, I've made this statement before and I've gotten all kinds of, uh, uh, 
feedback that none of it was complimentary. I've said that God has blood. And they go, no, he doesn't. John 8. Well, of course he has blood. How are we saved? By the blood of God. So he's got blood. How long has he had blood? Revelation 13, 8. You have to decide, when did he get blood? When did he get a body? When did he get flesh? Uh, and he's outside of time. And when you're talking about an outside of time, timeless, the person who has in, in, who has conceived and installed time, who can see all of time at once, when you're talking about him, you have to be really careful. And I'm confident that God has blood because God has and is the life blood. Christ has the blood and he gives the life blood. He is the giver of living blood. He is living blood. He has blood. God has blood. I'm done. Okay? And God is and he, he has and he is the breath of life because he gives us the breath of life. He breathes it into us. So he has to have breath. Do angels have breath? If I put an angel in front of a mirror and he breathed on it, would, would, any, would it fog up? That's how we can find out. Find out who's really an angel. If I ever have an angel visit me, the first thing I'm going to do is pull a handgun because I'm not going to believe it's an angel. The second thing I'm going to do is to breathe on that mirror right there. Let's find out. Cut yourself. Do you have blood? I want to know. I have ways of checking this out. <laughs> Obviously, I've spent way too much time thinking about these, can't sleep at night. When these convoluted, convoluted ideas. Huh? Uh, so many people say, we wish he was normal. Too late. Too late. But God has and is the lifeblood. He has and he is the breath of the spirit of life. He is the body of life given to us. That's communion right here. Eat this is my body. He is a body. Luke twenty two nineteen. He's the resurrector and the life. John eleven twenty five. So he obviously is concerned about blood, breath, body. And take this information that I just gave you, that this is who God is, and to Genesis one twenty six when he announces to the angels for the first time that he is triune. And then we got this blood coverings connection to one twenty six I told you before. Well, that's because the blood of those lambs that he poured over Adam and Eve are representative of the blood of the lamb. So let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness, he said. Adam was made in the image according to the likeness of the triune God. The angels were not. So why were men and not angels given this? The only explanation in my humble opinion of all the humblest opinions is that, well, angels didn't know that God was triune until Genesis 1.26-7.3.22. They did not know that God always had blood. If he told them he was triune, they would ask, what do you mean triune? Well, I'm... There's, a, there's the Lord God, there's the angel of the Lord God, there's the spirit of the Lord God. The angel of the Lord God is very much different than the angels themselves, though there are similarities. See, this is the mystery of godliness, the greatest of all mysteries, that Christ is manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit. So I have flesh and I have spirit. God is flesh. God is spirit. John 4.24, Colossians 1.15 through 18, says that you must worship him in spirit because he's unseen. But he's, he's also timeless. Again, the lamb slain, the blood of the lamb, all of that tells you that he has characteristics that you have to get to put in a pile. And try to work your way through it. So, 
Why didn't he why didn't he make the angels like this? Obviously, God withheld this compelling information of his triunity. And you may have noticed as you read the Bible that God has secrets, Psalm 10.1. He has secrets. He hides himself in times of trouble, it says. Why does God hide himself in times of trouble? That's the question. So why does he hide himself in times of trouble? We've covered it a little bit because it's about free will and existence. But uh, Jesus hid his infinite godhood as a matter of course is what he did, knowing why this is his why this is his mechanism, is his plan, if you will. That's important for us to know that God hides. Does he hide in times of trouble? That's the, uh, the question of Psalm 10.1. We need to know why he does it. Uh, we need to know that he does it, and then we, know, we need to know why he does it. There was a time of trouble. Uh, I'm sorry. Was there a time of trouble with the angels? Did he hide himself from the angels when there was a time of trouble? Did God withdraw himself during that time of trouble? Was there a time of trouble? Absolutely there was. Obviously, I have a fallen state. Did God withdraw himself? If he did, why? Better question. Did the angels accuse him of hiding? Did they wonder why God did not interfere in their time of trouble? In other words, when God waits, does everyone, angels and mankind, always respond the same? When he's not doing anything, or we don't think he's doing anything, we can't tell if he's doing anything, but he's always doing what? Holding it together. Without his mind, there is nothing. So he can't help but be involved. Everybody tells him, oh, Christ fell asleep on the boat. Oh, my God. Please. He didn't know what was going on, they say. The omniscient God of creation, the infinite one, doesn't know what's going on. That's your position? Rethink that. Whenever God appears to be hiding to us, we respond just as the angels, I believe, that being with anxiousness that culminates in disrespect ultimately, and blasphemy eventually. Why does God wait? Why does he tarry? This is the same question as why does God hide? Both are the same and as why does God test living beings and why is it evil to test God? All of those are the same exact question. Hopefully the vast internet Clifsidian, is it Clifsidian or Clifsidian? <laughs> Clifsidian sounds kind of like a venereal disease, I'm curious. <laughs> so we're going to go with Clifsidian. Clifsidian. <laughs> anyway, I'm losing it. Clifsidian, I hope the Clifsidian audience has a, a, a grasp on these questions because they are, they constantly arise and once you begin to put them all in the same category, you recognize why does he wait is the same as why does he test? That's the same question. Many times I've asked, uh, what was the two trees equivalent for the angels? We have two trees, a test for Adam. And did they have a two trees equivalent? Obviously, I think that they did. Anyway, we've got to move ahead. I'm really out of time now, aren't I? Did we start late, I hope? Yeah, not really. Oh, too bad. That's really too bad. Okay, got to go really fast now. Did you catch the implications of Revelation 9.15? The four angels who kill a third of humanity, two billion, they were preparing for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. That's incredible information. Clearly, they knew when the hour, the day, the month, and the year would come. They had that worked out. How did they do that 173,880, 490 times 4 equals 1953? How did they get that figured out? They knew. How did they know that? 
They knew that when the hour, the day, the month, and the year would come, and they were preparing, they were waiting, finally they could exact their revenge, their vengeance. Matthew 24, 36, steps 8 and 9 and 10 of the 12-step Hebrew betrothal ceremony template. That is, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. That's Hebrew betrothal ceremony. That's, again, steps 8, 9, and 10 of the 12 steps. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, Mark 13, uh, 32 through 37. All of those, 8, 9, 10 of the 12 steps. Uh, so Christ is omniscient and he's timeless. He knows. He's telling the disciples that the system is designed on a 12-step Hebrew betrothal template and you can figure it out. You can come up with at least the month and the year. Can you get the day and the hour? Well, these guys got the day, the hour, the month, and the year. They knew it. They were preparing for it. They figured it out. The point for today, yeah, a point is that the 200 million demon army knew. How did they know? How did they figure out? And for what did they seek revenge? They want revenge. They want vengeance. They want retribution. For what? I will answer that. For their death. They were killed. They know it. Real death. Uh, I found it once. Twenty-five forty-one Matthew. They want vengeance for their death. And what do you do when you have been killed? You go kill the one that killed you. So they blame humanity for killing them. Which human do they blame? So we'll figure that out pretty soon. The Noadic flood was about sixteen hundred and seventy years ago from Adam. I'm sorry, not years ago, years from Adam. 1,670 years from Adam was the Noahic flood. Genesis 6, somewhere where the angels came down, intermingled with the men, 120 years of warning, that was somewhere around 1550. From Adam. The murderous army, assuming they are at, they are the Jude 6, Genesis 6 fallen, have been preparing for 4,500 years. They figured out that we're going to be able to, to, to come and do what we want to do in 4,500 years. If my timeline is correct, which it is. So those who have a purgatory position are finding that view now in tatters. It's shredded. The fact that they they know the hour, the day, the month, the year, and they've been waiting 4,500 years. There is no purgatory. No possibility. It's in conflict with that very specific truth of 915 Revelation. So this also brings light to why Satan is released after 1,000 years, Revelation 21 through 3. three. He's put in the abyss and he's released. And it says he must be released. Satan must be released for a little while, Revelation 23. Must happen. Why must it happen? For the same reason that they must be released in Revelation 9. Why must they be released? What's going on in Revelation 9? 150 uh, days of no death. What's that? Salvation. You're drowning for 150 days. Imagine you're in the ocean. You're going. To, you're in the Titanic. Remember that? You're in the tri- Titanic, and there you are, bobbing up and down for 150 days. You can't drown. Now, is that good news? That's fantastic news. And, me, and at the same time, you're being stung and tormented by locusts and scorpion-type thingies. <sighs> Satan must be released for a little while. 
Same reason. Certainly Revelation 9, Revelation 21 through 3 explain a basic truth here or reveal a basic truth. They must be released. Satan and his angels will kill humans and animals given the opportunity. 4,500 years they wait for this. Which is why the lake of fire is eternal and there is no purgatory. Can you make that connection? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Okay. There is no repentance. 4,500 years, they, they, all they want to do is come out and kill human beings. There is not a single repentant demon. Not one. No remorse ever. That solves the Judas problem in uh, Matthew 27, 3, where it says that he regrets. The word means... I'm sorry, remorse. He's remorseful. The word means regrets, as though he's been outmaneuvered. It does not mean remorse, because he had no remorse. There is no repentance. Recidivism rate for the fallen angels is what? It's a hundred percent, no exceptions. Nobody, nobody repents in the abyss. That's why he lets them out. There is no purgatory, because purgatory assumes that human beings have the right to repent. There is no repentance. When you're in the lake of fire, you're in the lake of fire and you do not repent. And therefore, if I had billions of murderers in a, in a state penitentiary, and I know if I let them out, they're going to kill, do I ever let them out? So, that's why it's eternal. Finally, everyone's favorite word, along with lastly, and make him stop mom. The lie of Satan is contrapositive, disproves. It's been disproved, it disproved, it's disproved by the second demonic wave of Revelation 9. And some of you, many of you out there on the internet, I'm sure, and, and Dave and Terry and Lori for sure, have already figured that out. You see, if there is no free will existence, as Satan says, he says there's no free will existence, why would they wait 4,500 years to kill those who have no existence? Why are they all animated to kill somebody that they that that ceases to exist? He says, "Wait, oh, another one doesn't exist now. All I have to do is wait." But they don't want to wait. They want to kill them. They want vengeance. Do you want vengeance over somebody that uh, expires within less than a hundred years? Who who extinguished at a hundred years approximately? Isaiah sixty-five twenty now is explained, isn't it? Why there's a hundred years to those in the, in the millennium. Revenge requires the lake of fire to be eternal and the new Jerusalem to be re- eternal. And you can figure that out really fast, I hope. If not, guess what? You see, all angels fallen and unfallen can see the latter. The ministry of the faithful angels, the spirits of the saved dead being carried to him uh, who takes their spirit back, uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. Why does this latter ministry occur if there is no eternal soul or consciousness, spirit, mind? Why? There'd be no need for the latter. There'd be no usefulness to it. It exists because there is free will existence. There is a body and a soul. All angels know one thing for certain. All angels, every single angel, the evil ones and the, and the faithful ones, a living being does not end, cannot end. They know that. The killing is merely a light affliction solved by resurrection. Resurrection proves that the, say, the lie of Satan is a lie. That's why they do what they do and they think the way they think. Hopefully that gets you started on that 
proof or disproof? Because I didn't answer it really. I just gave you a whole bunch of pieces to wrestle with. So I am done now, right? Yay! Everybody says yay. 